Every four years uh, during the election year in America, the country becomes pregnant with hope and with horror. We hope that our collective participation might give birth to positive changes in our country. There are personal issues that each of us care deeply about, and elections, we hope, give us the chance to have an impact that will benefit ourselves, our children, our community, and our country. But along with our anticipated hope during each election cycle, there is also a deep fear that there might be complications in this moment for our country. Those feelings are not new to this generation. Historians will know that fear was present when the first contested presidential election took place in 1796 between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. There were questions about whether the young American experiment would be able to survive a contested election. They were wondering if we could survive the painful birth pangs of having partisan in the country. And it did. It survived, and it has survived for a further 56 presidential elections. And America, America is now a mature, stable, democratic nation. But in 2020, questions are now being asked. Existential questions are being posited about where we stand as a nation. In a blockbuster cover uh, story this month, The Atlantic asked this question and had on its cover the election that could break America. And whether we want to dismiss this title as being frenzied hyperbole aimed just at selling copies of a magazine, or whether we look at a title like this and we find it deeply resonant, all of us must admit in some shape or form, there is a grain of truth in this announcement. Survey after survey testify to the fact that there is an increasing polarization taking place in this nation. We've lost the capacity to talk to one another. We're blocking friends, co-workers, relatives, people that we share the same pews with on social media. The anger the contempt, the vitriol, is incredibly wearying. In the words of Richard Beck, politics has become a blood sport and we all carry the scars. And so November 3, for many of us, fills us with dread. And in a moment like this, I think the question that all of us who proclaim to be apprentices and disciples and followers of Jesus must ask ourselves, is what is Jesus asking of us in this moment? How do we live in such partisan political times as faithful followers of Jesus? And I do recognize that in these next few moments as we attempt to wade into this subject, uh, that this is going to be merely a drop in the ocean of information for many of us. Survey after survey tells us that the average U.S. adult spends upwards of 11 hours every single day on linear and digital media across all platforms. And so a 30-minute sermon is truly a drop in the ocean. 
I appreciate that for the vast majority of you watching uh, here in Washington and some in Oregon have access to mail-in ballots and to early voting, and you've already made your decision. And so this sermon may seem like it's of no consequence, but nevertheless, I think this crucial moment cannot pass without interrogation from the risen Christ. And what exactly is this national moment? What exactly are we talking about as we face an election in a few weeks? Political scientists have noted with some rising alarm that over the last few election cycles, there has been a rise in effective polarization. You may wonder what effective polarization is, and I'll tell you by telling you what it isn't. Effective polarization is not, and it's different, to issue polarization. Issue polarization, I think most of us are familiar with. It's the tight knot that we have in our stomach when we have conversation at the Thanksgiving table. It's the conversation that we overhear when we would be in airplanes. You remember airplanes when we would travel, yeah? that 2019 thing, when we would hear people talking about politics, uh, it's that um, curious look we would have in our eyes when we would hear people uh, having a conversation about it at a barbershop or when we would come across a Facebook post that would have been ignited as people discussed different issues. Issue polarization are the different ways that we think about climate change, about healthcare, about abortion, about immigration, about systemic racism, about the economy, and so on and so forth, and how all of those issues ought to be tackled. And although passionate debate rages about every single one of these issues, studies show that 67% of Americans labeled the exhausted majority show ideological flexibility and a willingness to compromise around all of these issues. But what political scientists are finding increasingly during this time is a sharp uptick in effective polarization. And effective polarization is a much more fundamental divide It's a much more fundamental division and distrust that people are now finding exists in their heart. The inability to think that someone on the other side of the aisle has the ability or the moral compass to be listened to. And this week, as I spoke with a friend, a sentiment that she shared rang true for me and really reflected this effective polarization that our country is facing. She was reflecting on her emotions around the election. And she said, you know, a few years ago, Andreas, I didn't really care. And I didn't know and I didn't need to know if my friends were Republicans or if they were Democrats. But now, now, if I meet someone for the first time, depending on what they tell me their political affiliation is, it will actually be a significant significant moment for me to decide if I can enter into friendship with that person. It is effective polarization. An effective polarization is a binary world where there is only light and darkness, good and evil. 
And to seed ground in a cosmic struggle like this is to talk and to recognize that anyone who is on the other side is an enemy. Richard Beck talking about this moment, and it's a long quote, but I think it's a quote worth engaging with, says this. He says, politics has always generated strong, even violent emotions because of how politics enshrines deeply held values. Rising polarization suggests that political affiliation is assuming an ever-increasing significance in our lives, an outsized role in defining our self-perceptions and worldview. In an increasingly post-Christian nation, politics is becoming our new religion, the repository of our values, the focus of our concerns. And then listen to how he concludes. The arena of our action and our hope for a better future. And as a consequence, election years feel more and more like holy wars. And perhaps this is what you feel as we face this momentous election. And conversation that seeks to bring in the kingdom of the heavens, the way of Jesus, and the kingdom of God might seem trite to you. You might be wondering, what has the kingdom of God got to do with stopping Trump? What does the kingdom of God have to do with blocking Biden? And my friends, if we frame this moment as war, then there are only allies and enemies. And if there are only allies and enemies, then it follows that power and dominance must be accrued so that we can win our righteous cause at all costs. And this is the moment in which we find ourselves, and I believe that the life and the words and the way of Jesus give us some tools to rightly interact in such a difficult political moment. We're going to go to the book of Luke, chapter 4, where our scripture reading came from. And it's an interesting passage that we'll be reading through because in the constellation of Jesus' teachings, the passage for today holds a special place of sacredness. The episode we're going to interact with only could have come to us because Jesus retold the story. There was no one else there to record it. But Jesus, unlike many of his public healings and teachings, shares this singular private experience. And so we have privileged access, special access to the soul of Jesus in this moment to see how he interacts. Luke chapter 4. And we're going to read it together beginning in verse 1. And it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Verse 5. Then the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomsoever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Verse 8. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall ye serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And verse 13, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So we parachute into this special moment of Jesus' life, having just established in Luke chapter 3, through his baptism, uh, the authority and the identity of Jesus as Messiah. And then Luke tells us that Jesus goes into a testing experience so that we can focus on how Jesus might exercise his power on earth. Jesus is tempted in three ways. And again, all of this temptation, I think, can be framed around theologically an idea of how Jesus uses, accesses power. The first is this. Jesus is tempted to benefit himself and to take care of his needs. When the devil says, look, there's some stones, turn them into bread. He is tempting Jesus to benefit himself and to take care of his needs. And Jesus counters the devil's temptation by quoting Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 and says, it is written. And then Jesus spends the rest of his ministry feeding other people's bodies and their souls. The second temptation that we find is Jesus is tempted to political dominance and to idolatry. Satan says, if you worship me, I will give you power over all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus counters the devil's invitation by quoting Deuteronomy 6 verse 13, which focuses true worship on God alone. And thirdly, Jesus is tempted to gain influence and to gain followers through flashy shows of power. And Jesus counters the devil by, he counters the devil's quoting of Psalm 91 by quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. It is written. And then he spends his life inviting rather than compelling people into the kingdom of God. And although emaciated after 40 days without food, Jesus responds with perspicacity in each instance, and Satan leaves him defeated. Jesus was clear, my friends, that power was to be used in service of others and not himself. Power is to be used in service of others and not of ourselves. I think that of all the three temptations, the temptation which speaks best to us in this moment is Jesus' second temptation, the temptation to political power. When Jesus is offered rule over all the kingdoms of the world, he refused. 
He rejected the path of political power and dominance and instead chose the path of the cross. And it is a disorienting and completely counterintuitive move from Jesus. Unless we think this is merely a theological thing, think with me for a moment about the context in which Jesus was beginning his ministry. The ancient world that Jesus was inhabiting was a a world that had a multiplicity of crippling social ills. The ancient world of Jesus, according to some scholarly estimations, was a place where nine out of ten people lived at subsistence level, which means that their meals for the day might have been guaranteed, but their meal for tomorrow wasn't, which meant they were one accident away from poverty and from having nothing. This was how nine out of ten people lived when Jesus began his ministry. There was no middle class. The state did not show much concern for the poor. Inequality was the norm. Disability was a death sentence. And social status was based on an honor and shame culture. And additionally, there is strong evidence that suggests that when Jesus began his ministry, the imperial government had started a new round of building projects. And this led to a demand in increased taxes. It led to forced labor and made a miserable life even more difficult for the average person. And yet, in Luke chapter 4, when Satan tempts Jesus with political power and dominance, with the ability to fix all these social ills, Jesus refused the offer. He refused the offer to wield dominance and power, even in service of those who would have benefited. And this is challenging for me. Maybe it's challenging for you. Perhaps we would have been like Peter, who in response to Jesus' prediction of his death a few years later, When Jesus says, I am going to the cross, Peter says, never, this will not happen. And Jesus says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Because Peter is re-administering the wilderness test to Jesus. Peter is beckoning Christ to take the power of political dominance and to avoid the path of the cross. Peter thought Jesus was making a huge mistake. Peter was sure that the pain and the suffering of an oppressed people under a ruling power meant that the kingdom of God had to defeat the empires of the world in conventional ways with conventional methods and to use the tools of the empire. And increasingly, my friends, as I listen and read and talk, I hear similar accusations being leveled at Jesus. I hear similar accusations and questions, although not said explicitly, they are implied that perhaps Jesus made a mistake. Jesus missed an opportunity to correct the social ills and the social injustice of the world in which he lived. 
The question is asked implicitly, did Jesus miss an opportunity to legislate moral rectitude? Did Jesus miss the opportunity to affirm the importance of the family? Did Jesus miss the opportunity to set up a theopolitical kingdom and have had an outsized impact, more than the one he had in his life? And yet, when we look at the life of Jesus, I think the answer comes unequivocally to all of us who profess to be followers and apprentices of Jesus, that no, Jesus did not make a mistake by turning down power and dominance and instead taking the path of the cross. And yet, here we are, trying to figure out how we ought to live in a moment when so many people are clamoring for the tools of power and of dominance because they want to make sure the kingdom of God might come. And to that I say that the way of the kingdom cannot be achieved through the means of the empire. Jesus shows us this clearly, that the way of the kingdom, as important as it is, cannot be achieved through the means of the empire, through the hatred, through the vitriol, through the contempt, and through the machinations of the empire. And so we have to stand in this moment and in our conversations about the left and the right, about the libertarians and the Green Party, and we have to make a commitment to interrogate our own certitude about where we stand and what must be done. We must interrogate it in the same way that Jesus listened to the words of the tempter and each time went back to his grounding base and said, it is written. We must interrogate this moment through the lens of the word of God. And this does not mean for those who are listening, thinking, Andreas, this is pie in the sky, my friends. There are people suffering. There are people in pain. And you say what we must do is come to the word of God. I mean, let's be honest. What did you expect me to say as a preacher? Of course, that's what I'm going to say. And, it's, and I say it not just because of who I am, but because of what I believe and who Jesus is. We must interrogate this moment through the Bible. We must employ the same acid test that Jesus employed. It is written. And we must practice asking the question, how does the kingdom of God challenge my politics? Most of us, including me, have been well-practiced in asking the question, how does the kingdom of God agree with my politics and disagree with their politics? But as followers of Jesus, I believe the question we must wrestle with is how does the kingdom of God challenge and disagree with my politics? How does the kingdom of heaven challenge my candidate, my party, their policies? And in our thinking, we must be disciplined to be radically self-focused. We cannot and ought not to ask, how does the kingdom of heaven challenge those people over there in that part of the country, in that socioeconomic sphere? But rather we should ask, how does it challenge me over here? How does it challenge my life, my priorities? How does it challenge the way in which I engage with a political moment? And friends, the way of Jesus 
will always in some detail and at some level conflict with the empires of the world. The way of Jesus at some level, in some detail, will conflict with your political party and the platform of your political party and the platform of your political candidates. We must recognize that we stand in a place and on a precipice like Joshua, who before he was about to go into war, when he had clearly delineated who his enemies and his allies were, meets a strange-looking person, and Joshua, we are told, goes to him, and he finds that this person, this strange heavenly being, is in fact the angel of the Lord. And Joshua asks a question, a question that all of us in our conversations about this moment are asking. The question Joshua asks is this, are you for us or for our enemies? Joshua asked, in a sense, are you red or are you blue? Listen to the response the angel of the Lord gives to Joshua as he has clearly demarcated enemies and allies before he goes into war. The angel of the Lord says, neither. And it's a hard lesson to learn. It's a hard lesson to stomach with all of our certitude about who God should be supporting. And yet, I think the question that we should be asking, a question that none of us should assume is, is God on our side? But rather, all of us should seek to know if we are on God's side. Let me repeat that. None of us should assume that God is on our side. Rather, all of us, should seek to be on God's side. And if we can do that with prayerful, with prayerful humility and with judicious care, we might orient our lives and cast our votes and lobby for policy and speak up for justice in response to having aligned ourselves with God rather than being so sure God needs to align himself with us. Amen. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshipped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.